0: Radio Catskill, this is Rosie Starr. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Sweetwater Fishing Guide Evan Padua has a Hooked on Fishing report that shares the recent chilly winter along the Upper Delaware River. And I share my impromptu conversation With Jerry McVicker and Dennis Mensker, fly fishing enthusiasts who revere the taper of handcrafted bamboo fly rods. Coming up on today's Farm and Country, but first, news headlines from NPR.
1: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. U.S. military says it has destroyed a pair of Houthi anti-ship missiles after the Houthi struck a merchant ship. Here's NPR's Dave Mistich reporting. The United States Central Command says U.S. forces identified one missile in Houthi-controlled areas of Yemen and determined it presented an imminent threat to merchant vessels and U.S. Navy ships in the Red Sea. Hours earlier, Houthi rebels fired an anti-ship missile that struck the Marshall Islands flag MV Marlin Luanda. The ship issued a distress call and reported damage but no injuries to those on board. Also yesterday, Houthi militants fired another anti-ship ballistic missile toward the USS Kearney in the Gulf of Aden, but that round was successfully shot down. Steve Mistich, NPR News. The Houthis say their attacks on shipping in the Red Sea are meant to show support for Palestinians in Gaza, where the U.N. Aid Agency for Palestinian Refugees is facing accusations that multiple employees were involved in Hamas's October 7th attacks. The agency, known as UNRWA, says it has fired the employees and is investigating the claims made by Israel. The U.S. and several other countries have temporarily halted UNRWA funding. Former President Donald Trump was scheduled to be in Phoenix last night to help raise money for the state Republican Party, but he canceled the visit. His campaign says Trump couldn't make it because he had to be in court in New York City on Friday. The cancellation comes amid allegations that state party chair Jeff DeWitt tried to bribe Trump ally Carrie Lake to stay out of this year's U.S. U.S. Senate race. Reporter Ben Giles is with member station KJZZ. Party officials do often try to clear the field of candidates they're concerned can't win an election. Elsewhere in that 10-minute recording, DeWitt raised concerns about Lake's electability and her fundraising prowess. Lake still denies her loss to Democrat Katie Hobbs in the race for Arizona governor in 2022. And Arizona is a state with a lot of independent voters who have soured on some of the Republican Party's election denialism. So, Trump was in court in the defamation case brought against him by columnist E. Jean Carroll. A jury has ordered him to pay her $83 million, and Pier's gimena reports.
0: Judge Lewis Kaplan ruled even before the trial that Trump had, in fact, defamed Carol when he called her a liar over her allegations of sexual assault. Carol, who's an advice columnist, argued on the stand that Trump hurt her reputation as a trusted source. The jury only had to decide how much Trump owed her, not if he was liable. This is the second time Trump has been ordered to pay Carol. Last year, he was mandated by another jury to pay $5 million for a separate instance of defamation. The jury's decision comes just days after Trump, the Republican presidential frontrunner, won the New Hampshire primary. Ximena Bustillo, NPR News, Washington.
1: And from Washington, you're listening to NPR News.
0: Welcome back to Farm and Country. I'm your host, Rosie Starr. On today's show, Sweetwater Fishing Guide Evan Padua shares the recent winter chill along the Upper Delaware River in this week's Hooked on Fishing Report. And I share my impromptu conversation with Jerry McVicker and Dennis Mensker, who are fly fishing enthusiasts. They revere the taper of handcrafted bamboo fly rods. Thank you for joining us on Radio Catskill for this week's locally produced Farm and Country. You may have noticed the temperature swings in our weather. A few days ago, with sustained 20-degree temperatures, the Upper Delaware River was frozen in some sections. Then, warmer weather moved in with rain. Evan Padua submitted this Hooked on Fishing report with accuracy. When it was cold, so keep in mind his good intentions.
2: This is Evan Padua, bringing you Hooked On Fishing. It's time to break out the ice fishing gear. Get out the ice augers, jigging rods, tip-ups, and vexlars. Make sure they're in working order and ready to hit the ice. Very cold temperatures has likely led to safe ice on most of our area's lakes and ponds. You want a minimum of three inches of ice for safe walking conditions, and twice as much for ATVs or anything with significant weight. Ice fishing can be fun when targeting susceptible schooling panfish like perch and crappie, because once you find one, there are likely more to be caught. They also taste great when pan fried. Small fathead minnows on tip ups are generally a reliable way to find panfish, bass, and pickerel. Swedish pimples and small jigs are a good tactic when using jigging rods. Knowing the body of water, its depths, and structure locations helps a lot when choosing an ice fishing location. If you do not know how to pick a location, grid searching with tip-ups or a hole-to-hole with your electronics of choice is the best way to locate schooling winter fish. This is a tough time of year for me personally. I prefer open water fishing over ice fishing, and I remain hopeful that with the high river flows, the river won't completely freeze and become an ice flow until the spring. There is still a slight chance for open water fishing remaining this winter. But perfecting the ice fishing game might be a better option. Be sure to know your local regulations and limits while ice fishing, and be sure that the ice is safe for travel. For Farm and Country and Hooked on Fishing, this has been Evan Padua. Flag up! Flag up!
0: Thank you, Evan, for that sweet report. Chances are you'll get your request for open-water fishing this winter as the recent ice on the Upper Delaware River is melting. Radio Catskill wasn't fooling around in 2023 when they asked me to attend opening day of fly fishing in Roscoe, New York, on April 1st. So I did attend the 7 a.m. ceremonial first cast of the season with Ahu Terci at Junction Pool. Afterwards, I followed my curiosity to the high school gymnasium for a demonstration on fly fishing bamboo cane rods. Today, I share my conversation with Jerry McVicker and Dennis Mensker. Both gentlemen are fly fishing enthusiasts and revere the taper of handcrafted bamboo fly rods. They welcomed my curiosity with patience. And so here is my conversation with them. This gentleman on my left, what is your name?
3: Uh, Jerry McVicker.
0: Hi, Jerry. I was watching you cast, and you took the entire gymnasium with your line. That's very impressive.
3: Well, it was uh, a nice rod. It um, was a six weight, so it needed some line out there, but I didn't realize I was running out of back room. That was nice. Nice rod. Thank you.
0: This gentleman on my right make this rod?
3: Well, no, that's one of his collection of his rods. It's a uh, Fred Thomas rod, and he's a Fred Thomas collector, and I'm sure he's got quite a few of them, probably at least 50 or something like that. Uh, Dennis is um, one of the uh, probably the best uh, restoration of vintage rod builders and makers on the East Coast.
0: Well, that's why I'm sitting on this bench. So now, will you please introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Dennis Menser. It's nice to meet you. I'm, as I said, Rosie Starr from Radio Catskill. And I'm very curious about this what we're doing in this room so let's start with it's a bamboo day it's for people
4: to come out and cast bamboo rods that, that enjoy bamboo rods I mean everything has gone so far with all the modern stuff today that this is lost this is a lost art anymore there are a few people getting into it but like everything else technology's got into it and everybody relies on a computer to do everything and uh, there's no old school left. There's very few old school rod makers left. And that's why I brought these rods today, because they were made in the 1900s. You know, early 1900s, 1930, 1920, 1900. And it gives people a chance to see what the old timers did with without a computer. Mm-hmm.
0: So you not only make rods, you collect them. So let's go back how long you've been doing this.
4: Thirty-some years. 30 years of, of making rods. I've been collecting them longer than that. But uh, What inspired you to start collecting rods? A friend of mine. A friend of mine had a broken rod, and I had made fiberglass rods and graphite rods from an early age. And he said, well, you're the rod maker. You fix it. It's broken. So I did. I fixed it, and he fished it for as long as he lived. And he never broke it again. So, And it
0: just went from there. Well, we are in Roscoe. It's uh, like the fly fishing epicenter here. Have you either of you lived here forever? I live in Hancock,
4: New York, mm-hmm. which is 30 miles from here. I've lived there for 23 years. When I retired, I moved up here.
0: What made you come up to the this area?
3: Well, I've been coming up to a uh, little little uh, hamlet over there, DeBruce out by Willow e. uh, since 1975, used to rent a cabin there. It was on the Mongop Creek, and um, the, I was always a spin fisherman, and um, met a guy up on the Mongop coming out of the woods, dressed like he walked out of an Orvis catalog, and I was just so curious, I had to ask him about fly fishing, and we had a great conversation, and he ended up giving me a, a, a fly, which was an Adam's. And um, I wished I knew the gentleman's name, but I didn't get it at the time. And that inspired me to go to uh, Walmart and buy a little kit for thirty nine ninety nine, just to see if I could figure this out. And by golly, I two casts on the stream, and I had a little brood trout on there. And from that time on, I was just dropped the spinning rod and just went completely to the fly rod. It's a different world fly fishing. So, and especially with cane, it's even uh, better. You're actually stepping back in time. And uh, as we all know, that this area is the, and New York, and the Delaware region right here, is the epicenter for for fly tying, dry fly tying, for cane rod building, for everything associated with um, fly fishing from its early days.
0: And why do you think that is?
3: Well, it just happened to be that's where the rod builders who started building commercially and in bulk established themselves in Highland Mills the Leonard Rod Company. Uh, Hiram Leonard was a a gunsmith, I think, from Maine, and was challenged to build cane rods and built them. And at the time before that, most rods were built made out of solid wood and turned. And cane kind of revolutionized the uh, fly rods. And they moved down to Highland Mills in New York and established a rod company there, brought some fellow um, gunsmith makers and rod makers down with them. And uh, from that, kind of was the epicenter of cane rod building, and from that, a lot of the rod makers went out on their own, cane rods and and others, so, and then you have the dry fly, um, dry fly tie-in right here in, um, I guess, Never Sync it was, so there's um, a long history just in the area of fly fishing.
0: What do you think of this <laughs> annual event at Junction Pool where... This- the willow weemak and the um beaver kill come together.
3: Well it's always been a tradition. April first is kind of like, you know, uh, the start of spring and everybody brushes off the winter cobwebs and gets out and gets their fly stuff their their rods out and um goes fishing.
0: Well, maybe you've done it a few times. I, myself, was there at 7 a.m., and it was cold and rainy, but it was my first time. (laughs) you are a diehard,
3: diehard, so congratulations on doing that. That's wonderful.
0: You know what I did five years ago that I really enjoyed? It was in February, and I went to the museum, the Catskill Museum for Fly Tying event.
3: So the museum, for those who are interested in fly fishing, is definitely a spot that you have to really visit. If you're a fly fisherman, you should really go there. The whole history of rod making and fly fishing and and fly tying is is there. So, you know, we love the museum, and uh, it's a um, self-funded museum, and it's all ran by donations and by people that are just donating their time. So I recommend for anybody that likes fishing, go to the museum. And if you can, sign up for a membership.
0: I think maybe the event was in the gallery.
3: They always have guest uh, tires at all the events that goes on throughout the year. You can always find something going on, especially in the summertime, and we have events. We have the Summerfest, which is a big outdoor fly fishing event. You'll have vendors there, people casting rods. And then in the uh, fall, we have uh, our rod makers gathering, and we have uh, folks come from All over the world, Japan, Sweden, England, Canada, they'll come down for that event. It's a three-day event, and rod builders uh, will uh, share their knowledge, and uh, we have lectures and those kinds of things. That's a private event, but for those who are interested, they can always check with the museum.
0: You know what I'm impressed with is the amount of women that are are now fly fishing. Would either of you gentlemen like to talk about that?
3: Well, we have the queen of uh, fly fishing right here up that lives up in the upper Beaverkill, uh, Joan Wolf, whom I've actually had uh, the pleasure of getting casting lessons from and uh, no better person to teach you than a qualified lady that uh, knows how to do that, right? So and I think it's wonderful and I believe a lot of marriages could be saved if men could get their wives out on the river with them and uh, it would be a happy event. <laughs>
0: I want to hear more about these bamboo rods because I had one in my hand a little while ago. It's precious in lightness. It's so light. It's actually, it's
4: not that light
0: compared to the
4: graphite rods unless you get a hollow belt. Then, then they get light with, uh, the regular cane rods. That's what the downfall with everybody wanting the lighter graphite rods and the fiberglass ones because they were lighter. And, uh, now with the, the glues that we have you don't have to worry about the rod coming apart anymore if you hollow it so a lot of the rods are hollowed today to make them lighter
0: when i first looked at it it reminded me of a willow branch but it's not willow nope it's tonkin
4: cane it only comes from one little province in china it's uh, pretty they tried to grow it here it doesn't grow it doesn't get the uh, power
0: fibers in it make it withstand the- When I first heard about uh, these kind of rods, I was thinking of the people that do the divining in in the ground for the water when they're at- attracting the water. Is there, is there any kind of lure or culture association with bamboo rods in this?
3: Well, the only thing that people will say to you about a bamboo rod versus like a what we call in the bamboo world plastic rods? fiberglass and graphite is that that when you do get a fish on that the bamboo seems to be more responsive where you you can feel every little move, every little head shake, every little turn. So it seems that there's a sensitivity in the bamboo that that you know relies right back to the angler. People may have different opinions on that, but that's the, the story I'm sticking to anyway.
0: And you, sir, what, what would you like? What is your favorite story about bamboo rods? My favorite story? I have to think. There's a lot
4: of them. <laughs> I don't really think I have a favorite story. I just enjoy bamboo rods. I enjoy them. And if you uh, watch the movie Chasing the Taper, you'll see. And there's a lot of other guys that really, really like it. Guys that make them, have made them for years, 30, 40 years. And uh, wouldn't change anything.
0: Say the name of the film again?
4: Chasing the Taper. It's, uh, it's a good film.
3: So The Taper the taper is just the design of each rod. So each rod is going to have its own characteristics. It could be a six-foot rod to a nine-foot rod, and in, in between two-piece, three-piece. And the Taper is the change in the dimension from, from the handle of the rod all the way to the tip. That's what really makes a, a nice rod work really well is having a good taper and, and getting that feel. You can make a rod and it could be useless. People will just use them as a tomato stick or something. But a good, well-designed and, and well-made taper is going to really feel really good in hand. Mm-hmm.
0: This type of rod, do you, do you think about a dry fly or a wet fly? Does it matter? Yes, yes. A wet fly
4: rod is much slower it's made more or less for roll casting back upstream and then bouncing it down, bouncing your fly down the bottom to where a dry fly rod is made much faster so that you can point it out and make it hit a perfect target. And the line straightens out perfectly with the leader and everything. Much uh, further distance that you're casting than you would be with a wet fly rod. You can dry fly fish with a wet fly rod. And you can wet fly fish with a dry fly rod. But in order to have what you really want, you know, to, to do it the way you really want to do it, it's, you need specific rods to do it with.
3: You know, some people are, are what we would call in the, in the flying fishing world as purists, where they'll only fish to rising fish. And a rising fish is, is a fish that's basically taking the, uh, the done stage of the fly off the top of the water. So basically, that's the dry fly. So when people see a fish rising, it manifests themselves that where you want to get out there and get that perfect cast upstream with a really nice drift down to the fish and then watch that fish come up and take it off the top of the water. Whereas if you're wet fly fishing or nymph fishing, you're under the water. So you're really not seeing the fish. You're just waiting for that feel of a fish taking, taking the, the fly under the water. So it's a different, it's a different game.
0: Do both of you practice catch and release?
3: Absolutely, absolutely. Catch and release? Most cane rod fishermen will always, you know, practice catch and release. And why is that? Well, you know, I think somebody said that a trout, like a brook trout, our native brook trout, are, are too beautiful to be caught just once. So, you know, putting the fish back in, in the water. Allows that fish to, you know, be caught again maybe, or also it's gonna let that fish uh, spawn, especially the wild fish. So I uh, no objections to people taking stockfish because stockfish typically, uh, are put into streams where they're, you're not gonna survive the whole year. So, and for young kids getting out there fishing and stuff like that, stockfish is great for them to catch and get the kids hooked into fishing and outside, so, which is a good thing.
0: You just said that wild brook trout is beautiful. You mean visually, or something else about that? Oh,
3: well, in my opinion, the brook trout is the native trout, right? And it's very, very pretty, very beautiful, got lovely markings on it. Whereas the other trout that we fish for in our local rivers would be the brown trout or the, the German trout, which is an import. Right? It was brought from Europe back in the late 1800s, when a lot of the uh, the brook trout were basically reduced because of various industries, acid making or tanning, did a lot of toll on the native brook trout. So there wasn't a lot of uh, trout available at that point, so they introduced the brown trout and the rainbow trout. Of course, the rainbow trout came from the west coast. But out of all of them, in my opinion, the brook trout is the prettiest trout to look at visually. Whereas you know the brown trout would probably be the more desirable trout to uh, for for fighting and maybe be more elusive than the brook trout the brook trout requires much colder water to survive, so you 'll see them mostly in headwaters in where the water is colder and spring fed the brown trout and the the rainbow trout they can survive a little higher temperatures, but New York State now has changed the the rules in regards to the fishing the designated. Five different categories for streams and, uh, they don't stock all the streams anymore. So, you know, they have, um, stocked and stock extended where they know that the fish are probably not going to survive in those conditions because the water's temperature is going to get higher. And as the water temperature goes up, the oxygen goes down. So the likelihood of the fish surviving is going to be lessened. In the wild designations, they've made them where you can only take so many out. You know, I don't remember the exact numbers. The wild streams is going to give an opportunity for those wild fish, both brook trout and brown trout, and maybe even the the rainbow trout, to actually do some uh, natural reproduction in those streams. Where they're, you know, if you stock those streams, then all the fish are competing for the food. And if you have a stream that's going to be naturally reproducing, you want to kind of enhance that and, and make that you know, a better situation. As the summer goes on in some of our rivers, because of various reasons and silt and runoff from pesticides and so forth and, and those things are, have made the streams where they're, they're not going to be able to sustain fish throughout the whole year. So in the early part of the year, uh, the, the stock fish will survive easily enough. For fishermen, New York is probably one of the best states. We have so much water and so much access. And it's because of people like, you know, the Darbys and the Deddys and Ed Van Putt and those who came before them that fought hard to, to, to make that water available to us. Oh
0: my gosh, you're so knowledgeable. How did you learn all of this?
3: Well, when you, when you like fishing, it becomes a passion. And you, when you have a passion, you want to learn as much as you can about. Your passion, whether that's reading the history of of the rod making, of the fly tying, of the gentlemen who walked the stream before you who wrote the books, it becomes part of who you are and part of your your whole DNA to you know to learn as much as you could possibly can.
0: I noticed when you were casting, practicing that you seemed to have that kind of passion.
3: Yeah, fishing is is kind of like all year round you know when during the, the weather and it, from april 1st it used to be april 1st october 15th you know would be your fishing time and then after that you would be um, at the bench tying flies and now um thanks to some of the folks that i know who are rod makers i've taken up the challenge to see if i can build some rods so during the winter time it's fly tying and rod making and preparing yourself for the fishing season.
0: You're actually making rods, too?
3: I've taken a couple of classes by different folks, and I've made a couple of rods. And um, I just retired recently, so I'm in the process of building rods at home and building up a rod shop.
0: Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Uh, Your knowledge is so impressive. Do you listen to radio, Catskill?
3: I'm so busy fishing and tying and stuff like that, I don't listen listen to radio or or watch TV that much. Good for you.
0: Thank you, Jerry McVicker and Dennis Mensker, for enduring my curiosity. Listening to your knowledge led me to learn more on the subject of fly fishing with bamboo cane rods. Before watching the film Chasing the Taper, I did some research and learned that taper is a technical engineering rod-building term that defines a rod's shape, its length and thickness, in very exacting measurements. The length and shape of the rod defines how a fishing rod behaves with flexibility in your hands when casting and catching fish. The range of fishing conditions that include wind, rocks, stream size, all influence the design choice of tapers. If you share the enthusiasm for fly fishing with bamboo fly rods, you may enjoy the documentary film, Chasing the Taper, available on Vimeo. Dennis Mensker and others discuss the dedication and process of bamboo fly rod making. They hold great reverence for this traditional art and craft. We hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production assistance by volunteer Sweetwater fishing guide Evan Padua. Special thanks goes to our guests, Jerry McVicker and Dennis Mensker. Little River Rods is located on the bank of the West Branch of the Delaware River in Hancock, New York. Dennis Mensker is making some of the finest bamboo rods in the world he and others are preserving history with their work. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening local to Farm and Country and supporting Radio Catskill. Public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Listen on air at 90.5 FM on your phone or smart speaker and online at wjffradio.org. Hi, this is Laura Flanders, and you can catch the Laura Flanders Show, which I produce right here in a cabin in Sullivan County every Monday night at 7 p.m. on Radio Catskill. You'll hear interviews with social critics, artists, activists, and entrepreneurs, forward thinkers who are building tomorrow's world today, deep conversations about change with the leading thinkers and doers of our time. That's the Laura Flanders Show, Monday night, 7 p.m., right here on Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania.
2: Hey, it's Steven Skeet. And
1: I'm Aisha Roscoe.
0: One of the things you can